I do have a word I want to share with you this morning. The title is Grace is Greater Still. Grace is Greater Still. And I'd like you to go with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. This is going to be one of those passages we're going to read it and you're going to wonder, where's the grace? Because it's pretty hard hitting. But it's going to be good medicine for our souls, health to our spirits. And I know we just prayed, but I'm going to do that one more time. Uh, And then take us into our passage. Father, we thank you for loving us with a never-ending love. Thank you, God, for always being ready to reach out to us with greater grace. Uh, Lord, grace that is greater than our temptations, greater than our despair, greater than our failures. And Lord, I pray for the weary in the house today, God. Any who feel broken, uh, like they're not walking with you the way that they ought to. uh, Just wondering how you feel about them. Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice speaking confidence into their hearts today assuring them that you always have more help, that you never tire nor fatigue with helping us in our hours of need, O God. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Grace is greater still. James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I promise we're going to talk about grace this morning. I remember my dad giving me sage advice when I was a tween and teenager. He would always say, if you ever get in a fight and you don't know in the first 30 seconds that you can win, run. (laughs) Sage advice. Absolute sage advice. Now, thankfully, I never had to test that. Really grateful for that. Um, and that works when you're 12 and you're dealing with physical adversaries. You've got a flight or fight option in most situations. But what about when it comes to our spiritual battles? I don't know that there's a flight option involved when you're talking about attacks from Satan. I, I've never seen that in Scripture or in life where you're able to run. You know, you, you can see Joseph making a run for it. But for us, it seems a lot of times temptation is constantly around us. It arises from within us. It seems like we've only got a fight option. And if you feel like you don't know how to fight well, or you feel like you're not fighting well, that can be a very discouraging thing as a Christian. Because there's lots of Christians who hate their sin, but when you look at the way it constantly gets them on the ground, you can wonder, you know, is something wrong with them spiritually? Are they deficient in some way? And in a lot of cases, it's not that. It's not because they secretly love their sin and they just want to entertain these things. They haven't figured out how to beat it. A lot of times it's because we don't understand the grace of God. We feel that it's on our shoulders to win the battle with sin, to win the battle with temptation. 
And that sounds like a very gracious idea that we're going to be getting into. And you can wonder, how does that come out of a passage this hard hitting? I mean, this was a gut punch. James is calling them adulterers. He's saying, you guys are warring and fighting and murdering. But there's something here that if we can catch it, whether you feel like you've got no connectivity to the situation described here at all, there's something here that can feed our souls. Now, maybe there are people here this morning you can connect with the passage in some ways. Maybe there are some things in your life that are being entertained that need to be rooted out. Regardless of that answer, there's greater grace for your great temptations. There's greater grace for your great failures. And if that's what you want, that is exactly what you will receive. So James's audience is engaged in the wrong fight. There's no flight option for them. They have to make war and they're just not doing it. Rather than fighting Satan or fighting for the lost, they're fighting each other. They're a Christian community, but they're marked by selfishness and by backslidden desire. And our passage as a whole is concerned, we find out, with winning the battle for our affections. Because the whole reason they're fighting one another, they're quarreling and they have strife among them, is because their affections are turned in the wrong direction. In verses 1 and 3, he uses an interesting word. He says that your tensions as a community are because of your desire for sinful passion or pleasure, or lust. That's some of the translations you might see depending on what Bible version you're reading. But in Greek, the word is hedane. It's where we get the word hedonism from, living for pleasure. He says you're having tensions and strife as a community because of your individual desire for sinful pleasure. Lust is not an exclusively sexual problem. It's not. Lust is any desire for what God forbids. It goes beyond just one particular realm of sin, one particular realm of immorality. Anything that God says no to, that we desire, that constitutes lust in the biblical sense. And because lust is a desire for what God forbids, it's inherently selfish. It's not God-focused. It's self-focused. And because it's selfish, it inherently breeds strife. You've already decided to love your affections more than God's affections. So of course you're not going to love people. Of course there's going to be tension in relationships. You're constantly hiding things. You're constantly justifying things. Failing to love what God loves affects our ability to love each other. When we don't love the things that God loves and we chase after things that he forbids, it's going to affect your ability to love other people. Let me give you a couple examples. God loves reconciliation, but very often I can love my offense more than I love the idea of being reconciled. God loves sacrificial love, but in a lot of our relationships, we might have affection for control more than sacrifice. God loves forgiveness, but I can love vengeance instead. God loves generosity. What if I love luxury and greed? My affections will very often determine how well I can love. And if they're misplaced, if they're set not on things above, but things on the earth, I'm not going to be able to love you well. I'm not going to be able to love people, beginning with my wife and my my son, and then stretching out to the people I minister to. I'm not going to be able to love anyone well if my affections are misplaced. And this is something we can't flee from. We have to stand and fight. 
So James is giving us this really bleak assessment because he wants you to see what can happen if you don't deal with lust. If you don't deal with the desire for the things God forbids, it can lead to two forms of broken fellowship, he says. And the first is it leads to broken fellowship with man. It breaks your fellowship with people due to three things, he, he tells us. He says it'll break your fellowship with people because of envy. He says, you desire and do not have, you covet and cannot, cannot obtain. When we're full of lust, what happens? We become discontent. Nothing's enough. We're always searching for more. We'll compare ourselves with others positively or negatively. Some people do positive comparison with others. You want to surround yourself with people you feel superior to, so you always feel good about yourself. Or at least I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm not doing that badly. But then we make negative comparisons. I wish I was that guy. I wish I was as pretty as her. And it's all rooted in lust. There's a desire for what God forbids. We're not content or satisfied. We're always thirsty for something more. We can have a misplaced sense of value. I want value from my body image. I want value from my possessions. I want value from my social media accounts. It used to be just account. Now it's like accounts on multiple platforms. And all of that can feed into something. We have to very carefully weigh the motives and desires and affections of our hearts. So we can break fellowship with people because of envy. He says broken fellowship with people comes because of abusiveness. He says you murder. Now it's very unlikely that he means this literally. He would have had a lot more to say, I think, if they were literally killing each other in this church. I think the letter would be even more strongly worded than it is. He's probably being metaphorical. He's echoing what Jesus said. If you hate your brother without cause, you're a murderer. And so this points us more to the idea of being, of being abusive toward each other. When you are chasing after things God forbids, it can make you abusive toward people. You're so discontent. You're so insecure. You have spouses calling each other stupid. I've been shocked over the past few months at how many husbands are capable of calling their wives things like that. It blows my mind. It shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have the ability to do that. If you're able to do that, something is desperately wrong with your soul. And you need to fix it as quickly as possible. We can become manipulative and controlling. We'll do character assassination. That's all murder. It's forms of spiritual murder. And James says if you're behaving that way, there's lust in your heart. You're chasing after affections that God forbids. And of course, he says it breeds strife. You fight and you quarrel. We live suspiciously of each other. We don't trust people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't think like us. And as the church, we're meant to live above those things. We can be so terrified of rejection that we'll control how close people get. It causes strife. You don't trust anybody. James says, listen, all of this happens when our affections are misplaced. And that's just broken fellowship with man. He then warns it can lead to broken fellowship with God. And that manifests in two ways. You have broken fellowship with God due to prayerlessness. He says you do not have because you do not ask. You're not praying. You're not talking to God. Now, I want to be clear on this one. There are many reasons why Christians can battle prayerlessness. It's not exclusively because of what James is talking about. We can go through seasons of prayerlessness because things are really hard. There's grief involved. We don't even know what to do besides groan. But here he's talking about a kind of prayerlessness that's stemming from a misplaced affection. We're desiring things that God forbids. Why would we talk to him? It's a bit awkward. 
If you're fighting prayerlessness, you don't want it to be because of that. Then he says that it's also because of inward corruption. You don't have because you don't ask. And then when you do ask, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When our affections are set elsewhere, times of prayer become hyper self-focused, don't they? No thanksgiving, just complaining, griping, no acknowledgement of God's goodness, past or present. It's negative. It can break fellowship with man. It can break fellowship with God when we're living for our lusts, our desires for what God forbids. And what he goes on to say in verse 4, look with me there again. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the battle for our affections is about where our loyalty lies. What are we really after? Pursuing pleasure in what God forbids, James says, is spiritual adultery. And it's oppositional to God. There is no neutral when it comes to the condition of your soul. You're either in drive or you're in reverse. There's no neutral with this stick shift. You're moving forward or you're moving backward. There's no neutral. Now, he's coming to the place where he's going to tell them how to move forward so that they don't move backward. And to kind of cap off his diagnosis, he's going to point them back to Scripture. In verse 5, he says, Do you think the Scripture says in vain he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Now, some of you, depending on what Bible version you have, you're reading that and thinking, that's not what my Bible says. Is because this verse is very, very difficult to translate. And it's ambiguous. I'm going to give you the two options on that. He's pointing back to Scripture. And he's saying one of two things. He says, the Bible tells us either the Holy Spirit in us jealously yearns for our full loyalty and affection. That's one possible way to translate it. And there's nothing theologically wrong with James saying that. That's very true. Exodus 34, 14 says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He wants all of your affection. He doesn't want to share you with other gods. He doesn't want to share you with other forms of worship. He wants your exclusive allegiance because that's what he's worthy of. That's what he deserves. Now, another option, which I personally think is more likely, but we're not going to get into the details of that. James is saying that our human spirit yearns jealously for sin. He's pointing out the sin problem. And there, there's all kinds of verses in the Old Testament that speak that. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But whichever of these options he's referring to, what he's telling us as his readers is, listen, you still, even as Christians, have an inward battle with sin. And you can't flee from it. You've got to stand and fight. You can't let it dominate you. It will break your fellowship with the church. It will break your fellowship with God. You cannot afford the consequences of either of those things. You've got to stand and fight. And this is where the solution comes into play. Look with me again at verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. This is where the comparison comes in. 
Even as born-again Christians, it's true. We will have inward battles with temptation. We will fight and sometimes we will fall. We will fight and sometimes we will stand and we will win. Those moments when we fall can be exceptionally hard. It seems like the more you hate your sin, the more shame you battle when you give into it. Isn't that the case? I would venture to say that all of us have been in that position You hate your sin intensely, and yet again it got the better of you, and you're on the ground wondering if you even have a reason to get back up. You do, because when you fall, when you're in the thick of the battle with temptation and with sin, God's response is not to shun you and turn his face away. It's to hold out greater grace and say you can and must get back up again, because this is the guy. He's been giving them a gut punch since verse 1. And he says, yeah, but guess what your father's response is? He gives more grace. And when you read this in Greek, there's some interesting things going on. Great is the first word of the sentence. So if you were to transliterate it straight from Greek to English, it's very awkward. Greater grace he gives. Greater grace he gives. Because he's accenting the majesty of the grace that's held out to us in our battles. God is not the kind of father who steps back and just watches ashamed because we're just not getting it right. You fix that and then you approach me. He says, no, son, daughter, take hold of my hand. You can't do this alone. I'm not just going to get you back on your feet again. I'm going to put a fight back in you. And you're going to go back into that battle and you're going to shame and humiliate the enemy for daring to touch your soul, for daring to touch your walk with God. When your battles are great, grace is greater still. When your temptations are great, grace is greater still. When your discouragement, when your despair, when your shame are great, grace is greater still. No matter where you find yourself in your spiritual journey, there is always more grace for your walk with God. There's a difference between a Christian who is genuinely trying to figure out how to do this right and a Christian who is drifting into rebellion by choice. That's an entirely different category, an entirely different message. We're dealing today with Christians who are trying to figure this out. And James is pleading with his audience to be that kind of Christian, to be that kind of church. We're not really told what decision they made. As readers, we're left to choose for ourselves what we are going to do, how we are going to respond with what he's writing and with what he's speaking. However great your temptations, your sins, your condemnation, your shame might be, God's grace is greater still. In the face of his audience's gross sin, he tells them that their God is holding out power to help them. And in the face of your sin, in the face of my sin, in the face of our battles, he's telling us your Father is holding out grace to help in your time of need. And there's only one condition for receiving this grace. There's only one condition for appropriating it. It's not come and weep and howl at the altar and, you know, show God how sorry you are. He mentions that for a certain kind of sinner. But he says, no, therefore it says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Are we humble? Are we humbling ourselves before the Lord or are we justifying our behaviors? Don't justify your behavior. Confess your sin. Don't hide in shame. Come forward and receive forgiveness. 
Don't hide things in the closet. Let the water of God's grace and his word wash over you and bring cleansing into your life. Because our response to this grace, our response, humility is the only fitting response we could possibly give. We don't deserve that. I deserve the hammer. That's what I deserve. Even now, as a Christian, as a spirit-filled believer, I pray in tongues more than you all. I don't know if that's really true. I'm making a point. Even with all that, I know what I deserve. But he says, no, I don't call you my enemy. I call you my son. I don't deal with you as an enemy anymore. I deal with you as a child. You don't stand before God as judge. You stand before him as father. Now, let me be clear on that. Standing before God as judge has to do with you're there to receive sentence and punishment for the acts that you've committed. You're not there anymore. Jesus took that place for you. The punishment for your acts has already been poured out in fullness on the Son of God. There is no anger left in the Father's heart toward you because it was all poured out on Jesus. The only way to have that anger poured out on you is to reject Jesus and his substitution for you. You stand before God as Father and you will get chastised. He'll deal with you if you're being stubborn. God's dealings with you, his chastisement will always be in proportion to your stubbornness. Always. It will always be in proportion. It's like, okay, if if you're going to refuse to bend, I'm going to push a little harder. I'm going to push a little further. He will always act in proportion to your stubbornness. But you stand before him as child. You're not there to receive sentence. You're there to be made better than you are. Judgment is about punishment. It's about getting rid of the sin and the sinner. Chastisement is about beautifying sons and daughters. There's a big difference between the two. There's a galaxy of difference between the two. Remember which one you're subjected to. If you're a born-again Christian, you don't get judgment anymore. You don't get wrath. The Son of God took that for you. You get greater grace. You get chastisement when needed, and it's not to punish you. It's to beautify you. It's to make you more a son and more a daughter than you've ever been before. And in verse 7, he gives us some instruction on how to respond to this. Now he's getting into appropriating the strength to fight. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our response to God's grace has to be surrender. That's our natural response. Now when you translate verse 7, you could also put it this way. Therefore, be subjected to God. Posture yourself in such a way... So that you can receive from him. Submit yourself to his rule. If you're resisting him. If you're feeding affections that are unholy or forbidden. Then no, submit those things to God. Don't go after those things anymore. If you need to seek accountability from the church. Then seek accountability from the church. If you're in a place of prayerlessness. And you need to tell your father. I need the grace that you promised. Then seek your father and tell him. I need the grace that you promised. Wherever you are not yielding. Yield. Wherever you're resisting, lay down your arms. Don't fight him. He loves you. He loves you. And he doesn't want to reject you. He wants to receive you. And this is very important. The two halves of verse 7, submit to God and resist the devil. These are what you would call commutative ideas. In other words, they're the same thing. Submission to God is resistance to the devil. We're like, we got to fight Satan today. Well, what do you mean? You mean pray really loudly in tongues and jump and shout and 
break out the tambourines. I mean, sure, maybe. But if you're doing all that, but your heart is not submitted to Jesus as king, you're just making noise. You're just making noise. I don't care what language it's in. You're just making noise. And Satan's laughing. And all hell along with him. But when we are in submission to Jesus as king, when we say, Lord, I don't know how to control all of these appetites. They're, they're there. They're inside of me. But I give them to you. And I trust you to give me the power to not live under their dominance. You are resisting Satan. You are fighting just by doing that. By humbling yourself before God, you are making war. It doesn't matter what volume you're at. It doesn't matter how your personality is coming out in those moments. If you're submitting to God, you are resisting Satan. Now, the opposite is also true. If you're not submitting to God, you're submitting to Satan. And you're resisting him instead. So James is setting us up, giving us a very clear picture. If you want to oppose Satan and walk with the Lord, there's submission involved. If you're not submitting to God, you're resisting to him. If you're not resisting Satan, you're submitting to him. But he's giving us a very urgent command. A very urgent command in that second half of verse 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. It's urgent. His grammar that he's using says he's almost shouting it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When Satan sees Christians on their knees, he just waves the white flag because there's nothing he can do. He, the only thing he can do is harass you and try to discourage you at that point. But when he sees us on our knees before the Lord saying, God, I, I don't want to fight you. I want to live for you. There's nothing he can do to, to beat that. He knows at that point he's done. He might try to make you miserable. He'll try to throw discouragement at you, but he can't dominate you anymore. He can't. Submission to God is resistance towards Satan. And James's point is this. The effect of surrender is always victory. The effect of surrender is always victory. And let me tell you something about surrender as we begin to come in for a landing here. You know that old hymn and other modern hymns that are just like it? I surrender all. Remember, it's a metaphor. You don't surrender all. Certainly not at one altar call. If you really surrendered all at one altar call, you wouldn't need to go to the altar again. You wouldn't need to pray again. I mean, you'd be ready to just go to heaven. You're entirely sanctified. But no, surrender is a process. Surrender is not an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a way that we live. We are always going to come across areas of our heart that we realize that doesn't belong to Jesus the way that it should yet. But I'm going to do something about it now that I see it. That doesn't fall under the lordship of Christ quite the way that it's supposed to yet. But I'm going to do something about it now. You pray with David, Lord, search me and know me. Test me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. Surrender is a lifestyle. It's a process. If you live in a state of surrender, you are living in a state of opposing the devil. You live in a state of humiliating him for daring to touch your walk with God. The effect of surrender is always victory, and it makes Satan flee. It makes him run for his life. And he closes out that passage both comforting and pleading with backslidden Christians. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. He's talking to people who've been in a state of serious rebellion. You read the first three chapters of James, my goodness. These people were in a bad place. But he'll still tell them, if you draw near, he'll draw near to you. God's not looking at you saying, I want nothing to do with you. I'm not stepping near to you. He says, no, if you draw near in humility, he's going to draw near to you. And like I said, maybe not all of us connect with all the issues that James is bringing up in this passage, but you connect with one or two like, man, I, I'm ashamed of myself today. I don't feel like I'm winning the fight today. I feel like I've been stumbling over myself. Listen, you draw near to God. He's going to draw near to you. His grace is greater still. He will never reject your plea for help. He will never turn you away when you come to him. You're his child. You have the right to the cupboard. You have the right to the pantry. You have the right to the refrigerator. I wish my son would start asking permission to go into those places because he's eating more and more and more. But he knows whatever belongs to dad belongs to me. If they bought it at the grocery store, belongs to me. Well, guess what? The storehouse of heaven belongs to you. It belongs to you. All the power, all the strength, all the encouragement, all the comfort that you need is at your disposal because you are in Christ. It's not because you deserve it. It's because of who you belong to. It's that simple. Amen? Let's stand together. And I would just like to pray, and I I know the worship team is supposed to come again. I'm not sure when or how we'll be closing. I'll be turning it back over to Felix. But however you need to respond to God this morning, do that. Don't hide in shame. Don't hide sin. If there's things you need to bring out into the open before the Lord, then do that. God will not reject you. He will only receive you. If you're serious with him, he's going to be serious with you. He's not ashamed of you. You know, this passage took on meaning for me. And with this, I'll I'll close and begin to pray. When I was in the middle of my time at Bible college, I was home for a summer break. And I was very full of myself, spiritually speaking. I'd had a wonderful year. I'd had an incredible experience with God. I went home thinking, I am going to turn my family upside down, the world upside down. Temptation turned me upside down. That's what happened during my summer break. And it was awful. And I almost dropped out of school because I was so full of despair. I felt, if I can't walk with God for a summer, there's no way I can go into ministry. And on the worst night of my despair, something made me just, you know what? Just turn on some worship music. And I did. I just popped in a worship CD and I began to pray. And I was like, God, if you can even tolerate a word from my lips, I'm sorry. I love you. I don't want to give in to temptation. I don't want to fall like this, but I I am. And the Holy Spirit just washed over me out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, he came over me and all I could hear in my mind was, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. I didn't even know where that verse was. I remembered reading it somewhere, but I didn't know where it was and I didn't know what it meant. And when I could finally stand again, because the glory of God was so mercifully heavy upon me, I grabbed my my Bible and my concordance. I'm like, where is that? Where is it? I've got to find it. And I found it right there in James chapter 4. And I saw he's talking to people who are just trapped in the mire of their sin. And he tells them, there's more grace for you. And I needed it because that's where I was. 
I felt filthy. I felt so broken. And I could hear the Spirit speaking to me without even opening my Bible. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. If you need more grace this morning, it's there for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Thank you, O God, for changing everything. Thank you that coming before the throne of God is no longer a danger to us. There was a time when you had to look upon your prophet, Moses, and you said, no man can see my face and live. But now, now, O God, we read the words of Paul that the glory of God has been made to shine in the face of Jesus Christ, whom we look upon and we are caused to live. So God, cause us to live this morning. Lord, I pray for great grace upon those of us in the house today who think they're the weakest among us. God, I was the weakest. And Lord, you raised me up. I'm still the weakest in so many ways. And I thank you that you still raise me up again and again and again. Thank you, O God, that your grace is greater still. So Lord, pour it out on us wherever it's needed, however it's needed. We will not hide in shame. We will not hide our sin. God, we come confessing where it's needed. We come repenting where it's relevant. We come, oh God, seeking your cleansing, Lord. We come seeking your encouragement and your comfort. Pour it out on us, Father. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.